information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Okay, enjoy. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast presented by the American or the Academy of Neurological Physical Therapy. Today, we will be discussing vestibular therapy for peripheral vestibular hypofunction, an updated clinical practice guideline from the American or from the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy and the American Physical Therapy Association. I'm your host, Dyer Cassidy, a member of the Knowledge Translation Task Force for the updated CPG. I am joined by Dr. Courtney Hall and Wendy Cardender to discuss the updates made to the CPG, published ahead of print this past December in the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Dr. Hall is a lead author of the original CPG published in 2016 and the lead author of the updated CPG as well. She is a professor and researcher in the Department of Physical Therapy at East Tennessee State University with over 50 publications to her name. For the past 20 years, her clinical research, her clinical and research focus has been understanding age-related changes, both normal and pathological in balance control, and how best to intervene therapeutically to reduce dizziness and prevent loss of mobility and function. Wendy Carinder from Michigan Balance, Michigan Balance Vestibular Testing and Rehabilitation in the Department of Otolaryngology of, of Michigan Med. She is a board certified specialist in neurologic physical therapy and provides comprehensive evaluation and treatment exclusively for patients with vestibular disorders, balance impairments, and post-concussion syndrome in the outpatient setting. She is also a co-author of over 30 publications and including the updated clinical practice guideline. Thank you, thank you for joining me for this podcast. Courtney, I'll start with you. What are the populations that are included in the clinical practice guideline? Well, first, I want to just say thank you for having us uh, to talk about the updates. We're excited to um, share them with you all. So the clinical practice guideline is specifically geared towards people with peripheral vestibular hypofunction. Um, we did gear this one towards adults and not children because um, at this time, there's just not enough evidence uh, for vestibular rehab in children. Um, so we included studies that involve people with unilateral and bilateral hypofunction, both acute and chronic. One of the requirements that we did include was that um, there had to be an objective measure of vestibular function. So whether that was caloric or VHIT or even the clinical test of head impulse, um, but there was some objective measure of vestibular function. Um, we didn't gear this towards specific diagnoses um, but we do know that a lot of the people with um, unilateral hypofunction are related to vestibular neuritis, um, trauma, surgery, things like that. Uh, in terms of bilateral hypofunction, there are a lot of etiologies that might be included, uh, such as ototoxicity, 
uh, neurodegenerative disorder trauma. Um, we did not include the disorders of BPPV, um, Meniere specifically, or concussion. So each of those has their own existing clinical practice guidelines. Um, so we really just focused on those with peripheral deficits. And how are the recommendations in this <laughs> clinical practice guideline different from previous versions? Well, the first thing that uh, is good news is that they are not different in terms of uh, providing strong evidence in support of vestibular rehab. So there's still um, a lot of evidence that does support the use of vestibular rehab for um, hypofunction. So, so that's the good news. Um, there were quite a few new studies uh, in this update. So there were 38 new studies that were included um, about half of them were randomized clinical trials, which is really exciting because that's a high level uh, of study. Uh, there were nine additional prospective studies and eight retrospective cohort studies. Um, so another um, new um, twist with this update is that there's now evidence that supports the earlier initiation of vestibular physical therapy. And we've not had that in the past. Um, there's new evidence to support a variety of balance training techniques. So whether it's low-tech or high-tech, virtual reality, uh, vibrotactile feedback, there's um, support for you know, these variety of strategies. <clears throat> so that does mean that as a physical therapist, we have lots of options for effective treatment. Um, there are new recommendations for balanced exercise dose. We felt that this was important uh, for clinicians to have that so that they can gauge whether they're providing a uh, high enough intensity of exercise. Um, there are stronger recommendations in support of when to stop vestibular rehab and more evidence on the factors that can impact therapeutic outcomes. So Wendy, why is earlier intervention recommended in the updated clinical practice guideline? Yeah, this is kind of um, some exciting news that we can get started um, early as vestibular physical therapists. I want to talk to just a couple of studies. One was the core in 2020. And what this group did is they looked at subjects with vestibular neuritis and they had them perform unilateral gaze stabilization exercises just to the hypofunction side. So they did this protocol for 30 minutes, twice a week for four weeks. And then they looked at these subjects in three different groups. Um, the first group was considered the early DVA group and they started the exercises within two weeks of onset of the vestibular neuritis. The late one group started the exercises three to four weeks after onset and the late two groups started the exercises one month or greater after onset. And what they found, they looked at a couple different things, one being their dizziness handicap inventory score. And what they found was the subjects that began the exercises within the first four weeks had significant improvements in their DHI scores compared to the late two group. And then even more excitingly, what they found when they looked at the VOR gain is only the early group so those that started the exercises within the first two weeks had significant improvement in VOR gain. And as a result, 
decreased number of compensatory saccades. So I think as physical therapists, we should look, um, there's going to be some exciting things or even have started coming out in the literature to support possibly different um, DVA uh, paradigms, including unilateral um, and incremental BOR training. So look for that to come. I think as physical therapists in the clinic, you should go back to your um, referring sources and kind of let them know that we can possibly make a, um, you know, get started early and, it, and it's safe to do that. And we can possibly have better outcomes in the long run. The other study I just want to touch briefly on was one done by Tokel. And they also looked at a group of patients with vestibular neuritis and had them start exercises um, within one week after onset. And what they found when they compared this group um, to a control group that just had standard of care, um, basically they had just got some general information and were treated with some steroids. Um, but overall, the, the treatment group had lower DHI scores, had decreased um, anxiety and depression, and overall perceived dizzy, decreased dizziness compared to um, those that just had the standard of care. So let's start these patients off early so we hopefully have better outcomes. And I'm thinking, you know, if we can get them early, possibly we can. Um, help control those numbers that end up with the 3PD diagnosis. So in the first CPG, there were no recommendations for balance intervention. What is the new evidence that supports balance intervention for individuals with vestibular hypofunction? So as a clinician, I really wanted to try to answer this question for all of you out there that are listening. So we dug hard into the literature. And just to know, this is um, based on uh, uh, expert opinion because it was extrapolated from the literature. Um, and even, I, I, let me take that back. So the, the it's it either um, expert opinion or weak evidence. Um, and the weak evidence is for those with uh, chronic unilateral hypofunction. So we wanted to um, find out does the literature support balance exercises? And if so, what should the dosage be? And basically, yes, it does support balance exercises. Um, but we, when studies are done, they often include four different types of exercises um, when they describe dosage. So they could include gaze stabilization, habituation, balance exercises all in one lump. And that made it very challenging for us to pull out specific numbers. Um, especially for the acute unilateral population. So even though we support balance exercises for the acute population, we can't really give a specific dosage. Um, what we did find consistently, those with chronic unilateral hypofunction, that we could um, say that 20 minutes daily was recommended for four to six weeks. And those with bilateral hypofunction will most likely benefit from an increased dosage. And what we found overall was a minimum of six to, to nine weeks of balance training. Like Dr. Hall said earlier, um, mixing it up, you know, doing your traditional low tech that you have in the clinic with your foam pads and BOSU balls, that sort of thing. Um, those of you that do have access to virtual reality or optokinetics or even platform perturbations, vibrotactile feedback, um, definitely all those things can be beneficial. The other thing I just want to touch on is um, 
the intensity of our balance training. And I think uh, clinicians should consider looking into using some kind of balance intensity rating scale so they can help identify when they are giving appropriate dose intensity to their patients for balance exercises. Courtney, what uh, is the evidence for when to stop vesicular rehab? So I just want to echo what Wendy said about the balanced dosage, that um, the evidence is based on extrapolation from the literature. So uh, typically, the research studies don't look at different discharge dates. So we have to just try to um, pull it out from the studies. But what we did find is that as a therapist, we can use um, achievement of goals, resolution of symptoms, normalized balance and vestibular function, or a plateau in progress, all as reasons for stopping therapy. And there's moderate evidence to support that. It is important, though, to avoid stopping treatment before optimal recovery is achieved, um, or on the flip side, continuing treatment for a protracted period. So if patients are not making progress, we did recommend that um, the physical therapist refer to either another vestibular therapist or a physician, just to be sure um, that we're not missing something. Um, there's some early evidence that people with more severe deficits um, bilateral or more complete loss of vestibular function may take longer. Um, and um, one study found that individuals with saccular dysfunction took longer. So I think we'll, in the upcoming years, we'll find more evidence to support that. But, um, you know, we may, there's some populations who may take a little bit longer. Now, the decision rules um, that I just talked about do not apply to those with um, significant cognitive impairment or mobility impairment. So those types of patients typically are not included in the studies. Um, and so we really can't um, make any claims for that population. And just know that it may take longer. Those individuals may plateau for a while before they proceed. So um, you know, when you're thinking about using the, the parameters for stopping, Think about your typical patient and not those with significant impairments. What do you what do you consider a protracted time? I mean, that can be kind of ambiguous. That is a great question. <laughs> and I, I would just list kind of the the guidelines that we use for the balance and gaze stability exercises. So for someone with um, you know chronic unilateral loss somewhere in the neighborhood of four to six weeks of therapy um, with you know, typically supervised weekly visits. Um, someone with a bilateral hypofunction typically will take longer. So you know, six to nine weeks. So I think if um, as a therapist, you're you know, standardly seeing people for three, four months, um, then that may be either longer than is necessary or, or not using optimal techniques, or, or it may just be that you have a more complicated patient population. Wendy? Yeah, and if I can jump in there just to talk about the bilats um, specifically, there were a couple studies that um, looked at vestibular rehab for bilateral hypofunction in the patients maybe did not 
um, improve or only improved a little bit. And they in, were then involved in studies using vibrotactile feedback. And they did show some um, significant improvement in certain balance measures. I believe posturography was often used as a balance measure outcome in these studies. Um, and so, like Courtney said before, maybe look at the yeah, techniques that you are using or the modalities and, and possibly try something a little bit different if you have access to it. Yeah, great comments, Wendy. Uh, Courtney, what uh, patient characteristics or comorbidities affect or don't affect clinical outcomes? Yeah, so based on the research, there's continued support that older age does not negatively impact outcomes. So really good news for us since kind of the average age of our patients is around 60. Um, there was some evidence though that older, older adults might need um, or might benefit especially from supervised therapy as well as um, more sessions of therapy. But definitely you should, as a clinician, expect your older patients to do quite well with vestibular therapy. Um, so some new evidence that also might be helpful for us, um, short-term use of low-dose antihistamines, which can help uh, control symptoms, were not found to negatively impact outcome. Yeah, so we've heard for a long time uh, that chronic use of vestibular suppressants can negatively impact outcome. Um, but this newer evidence that short-term low-dose antihistamines um, don't negatively impact uh, the outcomes, but may help control symptoms. I think that can be something uh, that can be very useful for our patients. Um, in terms of comorbidities, so um, anxiety and depression can impact negatively impact outcomes. Uh, there's only a single study that looked at peripheral neuropathy, but uh, that did have a negative impact. Um, there's some evidence that abnormal binocular vision can negatively impact outcome. And mild cognitive impairment, there's some studies that showed that they had um, good improvements, but not to the same extent, extent as someone with um, normal cognition. So that uh, cognitive impairment may uh, somewhat impact the outcomes. Uh, Wendy, um, what are the differences between intervention for individuals with acute vestibular hypofunction versus those with chronic vestibular hypofunction? Well, evidence tells us that both groups are going to benefit from vestibular PT intervention. And typically, we include gaze stabilization exercises, habituation and balance exercises, and a walking program. Um, those that have acute hypofunction our recommendation is that they perform 12 minutes of gaze stabilization exercises a day. Compared to those with chronic unilateral hypofunction, we are recommending 20 minutes a day um, for four to six weeks. And those with acute um, unilateral hypofunction, the recommendation is for two to three weeks of supervised visits, where those with chronic unilateral hypofunction and we recommend four to six weeks of supervised visits. I think as therapists now in the day, um, one of the good things that has come out of the pandemic is the opportunity to possibly um, provide some 
telehealth to our patients. Um, I know I'm in a clinic that I see patients that come from all over the state of Michigan, and it's sometimes very challenging to see them on a regular weekly basis. And so we have used telehealth to kind of um, bridge that gap or that lack of care that we used to have before. Um, and it, I think it really has helped the carry through of the, the home exercise program and being able to progress that program with our patients. So um, I think therapists should consider that when it's available. The uh, acute and subacute, you say 12 minutes, is that 12 minutes total spread across both pitch and yaw planes, or is that 12 minutes for pitch and 12 minutes for yaw? It's, um, it's 12 minutes for both. And typically we train at two different distances, um, arms length and three meters. Um, and typically we recommend that the sessions be divided up into three sessions a day. Um, so the patient actually, you know, stimulates their brain, their eyes, sort of, so to speak, and then gives it a time to recover um, instead of 12 minutes all at once. Better split up um, with time for recovery. Dr. Hall, any other thoughts on that? No, I, I think, as you suggested, that we typically spread it out and we may do a variety of gaze stabilization exercises, um, you know, times one, times two. And so, you know, those numbers are, you know, total for, for all the different types of exercises. But again, this is based on extraction from the literature. So, you know, there has not been a direct comparison of 12 minutes versus 15 minutes or you know, things like that. So I think we'll continue to learn more about dosage um, as more research is done. And what are the numbers for the for the bilateral group? I don't think you mentioned those. Yeah, so gaze stability for bilateral hyperfunction, we're recommending anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes um, a day um, over the course of five to seven weeks. Um, and we feel like maybe it's better if we divide that up into four to five sessions. So they may need a few more sessions just to be able to tolerate um, the exercises. Um, typically, the, these are done in progression where we have them if they need to start in sitting um, and then progress to standing and then add a balance component to it. So we try to add some variety, um, change the background of it, make it more complex. Um, I think for our bilateral patients, one of the exercises I have found very helpful um, from a functional standpoint is the um, eye head movement exercise um, that teaches them to move their eyes, then move their head to the target. Many of my patients have told me that this really helps them control their oscillopsia. Um, and so I use that and teach them to do it from a functional standpoint, maybe as they're walking down a hallway, um, um, they can use like in a grocery store to move their eyes first, then their head. Um, so they can tolerate that functional task a little bit better. Uh, what else do you need to keep in mind when treating patients with bi bilateral vestibular hypofunction versus those with unilateral? So there's some evidence that dynamic posture stability as well as quality of life um, for individuals with bilateral hypofunction does not improve to the same extent as those with unilateral hypofunction. 
Typically, those with bilateral hypofunction do uh, require longer treatment times. Um, and like I touched on earlier, if your traditional therapy isn't working and you do have access to things like fibrotectile feedback, um, you should consider giving that a try. Uh, one last question for you, Wendy. Um, yes. How does vestibular rehab affect quality of life? So there have been numerous studies that show that um, both D dizziness handicap inventory scores and ABC, so the activities-specific balance confidence, do improve. Um, we know our exercises can provoke some temporary increase in vertigo, dizziness, or even nausea, um, but we teach our patients how to work through those without getting um, overstimulated, so to speak. Um, there's been a couple studies that showed that even though the ABC and DHI do improve um, in those with bilateral hypofunction, the disability rating um, scores did not improve um, as much as to the extent of someone with a unilateral hypofunction. So I think we have to consider that. I think there's um, room for a lot more research looking at functional outcomes in the bilateral hypofunction population specifically with their ability to return to work um, and return to driving. And, you know, could they return to work if they had um, some different assistive technology or, you know, some uh, different parameters set up for their job to make it so they, they could do it successfully. So uh, one final question for you, uh, Courtney. Uh, what is the directions we need to go for future research? Yeah, so I started out um, right at the beginning saying that this CPG is, is geared towards adults. Um, and that's because there's just not enough research using children and their outcomes with vestibular rehab. So um, we really do need to get all the, the pediatric clinicians out there to... Uh, get their clinical research out there disseminated so that we have a better understanding of um, how children can benefit. Since the original CPG was published in 2016, there's only been two additional studies that included children. Um, so there's definitely a lack of research in this area. So another exciting future direction is the use of emerging technologies to augment vestibular therapy. So one example is the incremental VOR adaptation. Um, and this was first described by Michael Schubert and Migliaccio. Um, it uses a head-worn device that projects a laser target, which adaptively moves as a percentage of head velocity. This um, helps achieve a specific VOR gain based on the patient's function. Computerized uh, gaze stability training based on adaptable visual acuity uh, may also prove to be beneficial. Um, and finally, future work really needs to look at better understanding the outcomes of individuals with vestibular deficits who develop persistent uh, postural perceptual dizziness, so 3PD. So many of our patients um, either you know, due to poor management initially or anxiety and depression can develop this 3PD. And we really don't know the best way to, um, to treat them. So it may be that they would benefit from adjunct therapy like cognitive behavioral therapy or counseling. Um, 
but we really don't know what will optimize their outcomes yet. Okay, so please note the listeners can find links to the full text of the updated clinical practice guideline, as well as CPG related resources for clinicians, physicians, and patients on the practice resource section of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy website at neuropt.org. Darren, I'd also like to reach out and say thank you to the Knowledge of Translation Task Force, who's already put together a nice page on clinical pearls from the updated um, vestibular hypofunction CPG and look for more um, clinical, uh, yeah, help clinical pearls in the future. Thanks. You're welcome. And thanks to you for having us uh, talk about the updates today. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this interview, which has been brought to you by the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information on the vestibular SIG and the ANPT, please visit www.neuropt.org. Thank you.